When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Hello, I'm Daniel. Welcome to this episode of the Intelligence Squared podcast. In this episode, we were joined by Hashi Mohammed, the author of People Like Us, Social Mobility, Inequality and Making It in Modern Britain. And the book is a fascinating insight into social mobility in Britain from someone who arrived in the UK as a child refugee, was raised on benefits and attended some of the worst schools in the country, but has since risen up the ranks in British society to become a successful barrister. But the book is a quite critical look at social mobility or the lack thereof in modern Britain. Hashim Mohammed is interviewed in this episode by Razia Iqbal of the BBC, and we hope you enjoy listening to this episode. For those of our listeners who are in London, we want to flag up an event that we're staging on Tuesday, the 17th of March, we have Jim Al-Khalili. Jim Al-Khalili is one of the nation's best-known broadcasters and physicists. And we're staging an event with him titled The World According to Physics. And it's all about why physics matters, what can the study of physics, of energy, force, matter, and the behavior of matter through space and time, what can that teach us about the universe? And what can that teach us about the nature of reality itself? Jim will be appearing in conversation with another physicist, Helen Zersky. She's one of the UK's most popular science presenters. And they will be appearing in conversation at Church House in Westminster. Like I said, that'll be on Tuesday, the 17th of March. And we look forward to seeing you there. If you'd like to buy tickets, please do so on our website, intelligencesquared.com. Hello, I'm Razia Iqbal, journalist for the BBC. Welcome to this episode of the Intelligence Squared podcast. You can sign up for regular updates about podcasts and other events at intelligencesquared.com. I'm here today with Hashi Mohammed. Welcome, Hashi. Thank you. And um, let's start by by talking about how the book came about, because I want to hear in more detail your own personal story. But but let's talk about the the genesis of the book, because that will tell us a little bit. Yes, the book came about by accident, really, because about three years ago, nearly now, I made a documentary for BBC Radio 4 called Adventures in Social Mobility. And that documentary was my kind of analysis and pontification, if you can put it that way, of how I came to the bar. And more about my background, I was born in Kenya to Somali parents. And, you know, we came to the UK uh, in the early 1990s after the collapse of the Somali sort of state and the Somali civil war had broken out. And we came as young unaccompanied child refugees. My mother had given birth to 12 children and ended up staying in Kenya. And my uh, father had just died. So we came here as sort of, you know, out of the blue and just madness and chaos had ensued. You were how old? I was nine years old at the time and not speaking a word of English, not understanding the culture, not understanding the world that I was about to become a part of. 
And so that documentary then just charts that course of how I went from there to being a member of the Bar of England and Wales and what happened everything in between. As it so happens, the editor of my book called Cecily Gayford had been recommended the documentary by somebody who suggested that she listen. And she, in a really sort of incredibly open way, had written to my chambers, to my clerks, and said, for the attention of Hashi, uh, Mohammed, I'd like to meet with him and could you pass on this email? And the email was forwarded to me and, and I read the email and it basically said, I've just listened to this documentary. I'm amazed by your story. Have you ever thought about writing a book? Even if you haven't, can I take you out for lunch? And it was just the first time when I genuinely had anybody have any interest in me writing a book. And I met with her and uh, when I met with her for lunch, she brought with her about sort of five or six books and I think three of them she had edited herself and the other few were basically books that she said that were similar to the kind of books that I should be writing. And then I basically took six months to read those books and sit back and sort of enjoy the books and thought. And then the more I read the books, the more I got to know her style of editing and the more I got to know about other topics and the more I wanted to actually write the book. And two years later, here I am talking about a book I've written, which is so surreal. Let's talk about the title, People Like Us, because throughout the book, as I was reading it, I was thinking, hmm, he's talking about me too. And I am a generation older than you. And and that struck me really quite forcefully. Um, I, I don't share any of the, the your original story at all, but the idea of coming to an alien place and, and trying to navigate that place feels very familiar. Is that why you thought People Like Us was an apt title? The title People Like Us was very much one where I thought would resonate with anyone. And uh, you know, I'm glad to hear that it resonated with somebody like you whose experience is very different. But it was also something that we felt when I was going through the book and I and I was writing it and we were brainstorming for the title, it, it was something that was quite affectionate and connected with people because you instantly would think that's somebody like me. But it's also a pejorative term in some ways, and it's a wordplay on that, because you have the kind of upper middle class or higher class English society who might put people down by saying, oh, no, darling, they're not PLU. You might have heard that in the kind of sketches of, of, of Joanna Lumley in, in Absolutely Fabulous. Darling, no, they're not PLU. And, and it, it can also be used as the kind of person who might sort of be talking to their son or daughter and say, no, 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 people like us don't go there. And it's a kind of restraining title in that sense as well. So that's why I think it, I felt it worked. And that's why I think I felt it could connect with a lot of people, no matter who you are, at, at what level of society you are, you know, the title will speak to you. Let's go back and and put you in Northwest London, age nine. Tell us a little bit about the exact circumstances of your family. So your your mother had stayed in Nairobi, although you were reunited with her. Your father had died in a car crash. Just describe a little bit exactly where you lived, what, how many people you lived with, what the conditions were. We settled in uh, a a corner of northwest London, in particular uh, Wembley, uh, sort of Sudby, Sudbury area. And we were many because just a few months before us, 
had arrived, my auntie and her children. We had arrived, some of my siblings and I, trying to basically live with them. We lived in incredibly squalor conditions that were sometimes five, six to a room. Most of us were under the age of uh, sort of 10, 12, the children. The adults themselves were at best sort of in their early 30s and certainly no wiser than we were about British culture, English culture or in the English language. We were constantly moving because of the council's situation of not being able to house us in you know, effective and uh, appropriate housing. And it was very, very dire set of circumstances where you're not understanding why you are where you are as a child. You don't understand what's going on. The adults are incapable of explaining to you what exactly is happening and why you're there. There isn't a real sort of central government figure, authority, institution that is able to assist you in any meaningful way because they themselves can't actually understand how to help you. There isn't a central authority figure in the family that is able to make sense of all of this either. And so bringing all of that together makes up for a, a real chaotic cocktail situation which incidentally, which is also really important to say, was un, you know, unremarkable for a lot of people like us, Somalis who had fled the war, who had come here for the first time. For people like us, it was really genuinely just normal. And actually ask anyone who had arrived in the UK in the early to the mid-1990s, fleeing war from Somalia in particular, who came to the UK, and I can tell you they have exactly either similar or potentially even worse uh, examples of, of life uh, as, we, as we knew it. And school? What was that like? School was, was a blur because I remember, I remember going to school and it being probably the only constant thing. Because when you're constantly being moved around by the council from one temporary accommodation to the next, the school that you went to often was the only thing that remained constant unless they moved you too far out of the catchment area. But it was also chaotic because teacher retention was poor. Our teacher got beaten up in the middle of the playground in one shocking incident. Which you recount in, in the most extraordinary way in the book. Just tell us a little bit about that because yes. just the, the very idea of, of a teacher being beaten up in the school playground uh, and being watched by all the students feels one traumatic incident enough in a child's life. Yes, I mean... It was probably uh, one of the most shocking examples of what was going on in our community, but it wasn't the only example, quite frankly. Um, it was only shocking because it wasn't happening in our community where we lived and stayed because we saw a lot of violence and fights and gun crime when we were growing up in the area. The only thing that made this particular incident shocking was the fact that it was happening in the middle of the school playground. But you had a situation where the teacher the head teacher had come out to basically ask for a parent to leave the premises, a parent who was so angry and so distraught at the fact that his daughter had been excluded from the school. He himself, the father that is, had obviously major mental health problems. But he came in and obviously we didn't know what happened before. He might have had a meeting that went bad or something or other. But he was beating this head teacher in the middle of the playground and news had gone around the school that Mr. Sh you know, the teacher himself was being beaten up in the middle of the playground. 
And all the kids came out to watch. And it was incredible because, you know, can you imagine being in the middle of the playground and watching your head teacher being beaten black and blue and no one is helping, no member of staff, no other student, no other pupil. And then the police turned up. The police had sent two female police officers who were half the size of this massive guy. And in fact, a student had given given this man an umbrella. Yeah. At one point when the teacher was constantly trying to get up to ask this teacher to leave, there was one student who handed up a, a small umbrella to this mad, obviously clearly you know, disturbed chap. And he continued to beat the, the head teacher. And the police who had come to restrain him couldn't do it. And he was obviously sick. This man was obviously sick in hindsight. And yeah, that was an example of a day in the life of what was then Wembley High School. The book in, in many ways could be seen as a guidebook, if you like, a kind of self-help book for people like us, people who might feel bewildered and not clear about how to navigate their place in a society that might feel alien to them. But but it also is the most forensic study of why social mobility is difficult. At what point did you think that that had to be part of your story? I think right from the beginning, I was absolutely clear in my own head that I did not want to write a story that was going to sell this pipe dream that no matter who you are, whatever you've come from, you can be whatever you want to be. That's just not true. With you as the central character exactly. who, who, who embodied that. Exactly. As if my story could be used as an example that justifies what I consider to be a wholly unfair and unjust system in a way that then uses to sort of mobilize my own story to either beat people across the head or justify a system that requires whole-scale change. So that was very clear to me at the very beginning. From the very beginning, I was absolutely clear that that's not what this story is going to be about. But also, it was really important to make it an inspirational book. So as you say, for example, it is somewhat of a a how-to guide in that I explain how I overcame so many of these challenges. But at the same time, it's important not to sort of say, well, if I did it, this is how you should be able to do it either. And that's why, again, I keep coming back to in the book about you have to find your own way, you you have to find your own voice, and you have to found, find your own sort of path to navigate these sort of very, very difficult uh, 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 issues. So yes, in the end, it was quite critical for that striking balance between not harnessing my own story to be able to say anything is possible, but at the same time, using my story to be able to say, this is how I have overcome the issues Hopefully it will be useful to you. It was particularly interesting that you said on several occasions in the book that the outcome for you was not the outcome for your siblings. So although you had all had a similar experience, in many ways, pretty much the same experience of navigating a new country, their outcomes had been a lot less stellar, to say the very least. Yes, that that for me is is probably one of the the most important tension in the book because I did not have any discernible advantage over them when I came to the United Kingdom. But I did have somewhat of an advantage in that I lived with both of my parents uninterrupted 
for the first two years without sort of, in some ways, the intrusion, if you like, of other siblings. But the fact that so many of them didn't have what I have, I also make clear, isn't because they were either less capable of me, less capable than me, or indeed less sort of hungry uh, uh, than than I am. But it was more a, a question of fate and, a, and an accident, really, in that some of them will have come to the United Kingdom perhaps a bit too much older. I, I really believe that if you're going to come to a new country in a new way and start from scratch, there's that sort of sweet spot of an age between 8 and 12. And if you come a bit later than that, it's much, much harder to make up a lot of lost ground. Um, but also, I think there was a lot of sacrifice that was made by some of my siblings in order for me to be able to do as I as well as I did. You know, some of my, you know, one of my brothers who was a bit older than me had had dropped out of school to work so that we could have what we needed. My sister was holding the fort at home when I was at university because my mum was really sick, which meant that I didn't have to come back and do something because she was taking care of of the situation. Did that happen quite naturally or was there a, a negotiation that took place? There was no real negotiation that took place. And I think that happened, I, I think to say it happened naturally would be to put too fine a point on it and to to give it a, a sort of the benefit of, 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 of what it sounds like. But I think it happened more or less by accident. And it happened because of the circumstances rather than any real discussion where we sat down around a table and decided, actually, you should go to university, you should look after mum and you should go to work. There was nothing of the sort. It just happened the way that it happened. And I'm very much acutely aware of that. Now, it doesn't necessarily mean that I'm guilty or feeling guilty of the fact that I've had, you know, a different kind of success, but I am conscious of it and it would be foolish of me to ignore it. Let, let's let's talk then about the the, the distinctions that you make in assumptions that people have, one of the one of the assumptions that people have about social mobility, particularly policymakers and politicians, is that if if only we get the education right, if we give everyone equal opportunity when it comes to education, and we we re, we fix that system, everyone can have the same chance, and everyone will turn out better than than everybody does now. But but we all know that that's not true. And you make it quite clear in the book that education is not this kind of holy grail. There are so many other things that have to fall into place. Yes. Uh, and I think that's quite important because we have seen how successive governments, Labour, Conservative, Coalition, have constantly sort of said, education, 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 in his famous mantra, Tony Blair, is the answer when in fact, it's not even really the main answer. Education is critical to human beings and their ability to expand their minds and their ability to have the basic tools to be able to get on in life. That much is uncontroversial. But beyond that, if you're suggesting that education is the answer in pulling people out of the kind of situations that they're born into, in such a fundamental way that means that you are going to transform their mindsets. You're going to transform their past as compared to their future. 
you are going to suggest to them that they are now worth monetarily wise or or professional wise or whatever it is that they're worth more than their parents that you're going to then say to people you are going to have a completely different destiny to that which you have ever been used to that your parents have been used to that your grandparents have been used to the notion that education is the panacea to that kind of transformation is deeply misguided and it's deeply misguided because there are so many other factors that are at play including the kind of circumstances in which you grow up in the kind of schooling that you actually have in those circumstances the kind of mindset that you develop when you're growing up that tells you that you need to be able to aspire and imagine a different future for yourself it, the kind of uh, world in which you're actually growing up at that time the world that you might have been growing up in in the early 1990s is completely different to the kind of automated world that we're growing up in today and so much else so what i try and argue is i try not to undermine the power of education for education's sake but it's much much more than that and then the final thought on that is also when you think about parents who send their children to private schools ask yourself are they genuinely buying an education or are they buying much much more they're not buying an opportunity for their children to be able to pass the same exams that most children can pass in any state school what they're buying is what we often refer to as for example social capital who you know who do they know who can give you an internship for free cultural capital your ability to understand cultural references the way you speak your accent the people you communicate with the kind of cultural references that you have these are the kind of things that people when they pay for private school are paying for and frankly at the bottom of it all really they're paying for an opportunity for them to mix with people like them and that is the critical point so the idea that we then end up putting so much pressure on our state education system and our state education teachers who are paid poorly in real poor conditions to then have to then change what is been in place for so long is just deeply deeply misguided. Hashim Muhammad still lots to talk about let's just take a pause. Hashim let's talk about this really critical idea of social and cultural capital because it in many ways you are the embodiment of someone who has acquired it learned it as am i right it, it we recognize the people who can do it and who have done it successfully first of all let's talk about social capital because if you start absolutely at the bottom of the rung in terms of class there are all kinds of things that need to be learned in order to fit in in order to feel differently talk us through how that worked for you in terms of understanding whether or not you have the right cultural capital the events calendar is filling up here at intelligence squared and to create each one we obviously rely on some brilliant guests and on stage talent but behind the scenes there's also a producer a production team and the budget in the mix too you've got to keep an eye on all of that stuff in one place netsuite is the number one cloud financial system bringing accounting 
financial management, inventory and HR into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. And you can cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because it's super easy to get started. NetSuite exists in the cloud, you see. No hardware needed. So you're cutting IT costs too. That's why over 37,000 companies have already made the move. And now by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash squared. That's netsuite.com slash squared. netsuite.com slash squared. Sponsoring the show for this episode is Marquee TV. Marquee TV is a streaming service with a difference. It's bringing you the top tier of performing arts straight into your living room or onto your device. So think dance, theatre, music, anything you might find in the West End, Broadway, or maybe a cool little experimental space too, but saving you the cost of a few tickets as well. I've got happily a bit lost in their vast library of performances, exclusive interviews, and behind-the-scenes content. Choreographer Jonathan Watkins' interpretation of George Orwell's classic 1984 was pretty cool, and I love the dance piece, Sutra, inspired by the skills of Buddhist Shaolin monks. And we've got a special treat for our listeners. Marquee TV offers three months of access for just 99 cents. That's right, three months for only 99 cents. With the code squared, simply visit marquee.tv and use the promo promo code squared to dive into the world of arts like never before. Bring the arts home with Marquee TV. It isn't really rocket science. If, for example, you are growing up in a particular context, say, for example, in a city London today, you're going to grow up in a community where most of you will not have really mixed with anybody with a professional job like a barrister or an accountant or or a banker, for example. Not always, but for the most part. But your cultural capital becomes either the, the slang that you use in the local area, your knowledge of each and every single football team and their strikers and who were signed in the last transfer market, the music and the artists that you're used to, the conversations that might be involved in your own particular cultural community, whether if you're Algerian or Somali, Ghanaian or Pakistani, Indian or Irish, that is what gives you that cultural capital within that context. That is what gives you that power to be able to communicate within that community and and fit in. It's a code. It's that code. But if you are aspiring to something else, namely to becoming a barrister, for example, you have to quickly realize that there is a different kind of cultural capital that, quite frankly, invariably means different ways of speaking, whether that be the accent, whether that be the vocabulary you use, whether that be the way you carry yourself, whether that be you make references to, you know, Shostakovich and and Hamlet, whatever it might be, that's a different level of cultural capital. Now, One is no more better or more valuable than the other, but it's a different code. And opens different doors. Opens different doors because you're mixing with different people from different backgrounds in different contexts. And it is critical that if you are going to be socially mobile and you're keen on somehow aspiring to a different future and a different destiny, that you understand that. Now, You then have to make a choice. Do you learn the codes and the cultural capital that you require to be able to get on 
without necessarily passing judgment on where you've come from and who you are? Or do you say, I am going to be who I am, I'm going to be true to myself, and I will never change and learn these codes and, 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 and ways of speaking or cultural capital? That's an entirely fair you know, choice that you make. But the, they, that has consequences. That has consequences because I believe that if you make that choice of that I believe to be a narrow choice of saying, I will not learn a different code of the world in which I hope to aspire to be in, I strongly believe that you are limiting yourself and you limit the opportunities and the chances for you to be able to get on. But as you said earlier, it's not just the individual that necessarily would limit themselves. There is also the community from which an individual comes. And if that community is saying, know your place, and this isn't for people like us, that is also something that it's like a leash. Absolutely. And that leash is actually in two ways. There's the leash of the people from whom you have come from, who are saying to you, hang on, you don't talk like us anymore. You don't mix with us anymore. Do you think you're better than us? And then, of course, when you actually get to wherever fulfilling opportunity you've you know, embraced and whatever fulfilling job you're in, and say you are at the top, in inverted commas, there are those people who you're now mixing and mingling with who will find every which way to challenge you to just check once again if you are people like them. They might do it in the sort of passive-aggressive way in which you're asked about what kind of school you went to, what kind of university you went to. Give me an example of that happening to you. A classic example was, as I recall in the book, I won a prestigious mooting competition, which is a mock legal debate that takes place at the Honourable Society of Lincoln's Inn, where I'm a member. And having won this debate, you get to sit at this top table where very old fogies about to be struck with gout are sitting around. <laughs> you describe the environment as well, like a sort of a Hogwarts dinner. It is a very, much, dinner, it, yeah. very much a Hogwarts kind of environment in which you're wearing gowns and we toast the Queen and, and we sit around these old tables and, and, and portraits of, of, you know, of, of yesteryear, and I'm talking about centuries ago. And people say, well, one of them said to me, oh, I just saw you debating uh, earlier on in that mooting competition. Well done, uh, young man. What kind of school did you go to? What school taught you how to fine uh, uh, tune your mooting skills like that? Now, that's quite interesting. If we pause and think about that question, in one way, you're being paid a huge compliment. You're being paid a huge compliment because you've just won this you know, prestigious competition and I'm grateful and, and I'm happy about that. But in another way, he, what he's doing is actually saying, I need to codify who you are. I need to understand where you fit in based on the metrics that are in my head, based on class, what school you went to, and where this quality came from. And that's interesting because anybody who isn't confident within themselves and understand that as a sort of having an out-of-body experience to be able to understand what's happening there can instantly feel undermined and instantly feel that I've just won this competition and now you're asking me what kind of school I went to. I'm, and you feel really small because you might think, actually, I'm not proud of the kind of school I went to. I went to a really bad school. It isn't a public school. And I don't necessarily want to tell you. The opposite might be that I went to a really good public school and I'm going to tell you and I'm going to connect with you and now you might help me with my career. My response was, I said, well, actually, I went to the kind of school 
where I had to talk my way out of getting stabbed. And you could see his face, <laughs> you know, just go completely white. And he thought it was a joke. And I said, no, no, I'm serious. I went to a really rough school in Northwest London, Wembley High School. You might have heard of it. <laughs> and, and that is an example of what I was saying in terms of, you know, you were saying that you're, from your community, they may, there might be that leash that holds you back of people who think that you're aspiring to something different and therefore you might be holding, uh, they might want to hold you back. But there's also that kind of push mm. from the top of people saying, actually, you're not really people like us. And the, the, the things that you mentioned just there, you know, the, the issue of, um, of class and education, the, another intersection, of course, is race. Let's talk a little bit about that because there are clear uh, indices that, that that show that that race is also also plays a part in the way in which social mobility works and the dynamics of social mobility. Just outline for us both in terms of individual experience, but also the way in which you lay it, play, lay it out in the book, that, that there are all these things that come into play. And, and to focus on one single thing is a mistake for politicians and policymakers. Absolutely. It, when we come to sort of understand why we're not making enough progress in social mobility, it's very easy to just simply say, we need more state educated kids in the top professions. It's very easy to say, we need more women to get into the top professions. But actually what we're lacking a full or a fuller understanding of is that whilst it's very noble and very helpful to say we need more people from uh, state education in the top professions and we need more people from non-Oxbridge education at the top professions, what, what people don't necessarily fully appreciate is if you are, for example, a black guy with a Muslim name called Hashi Mohammed who went to a state school, whose parents couldn't read and write, who came here as a nine-year-old refugee and who has no real understanding of what's going on in this country, couldn't speak a word of English at the age of nine, you can already see the multiple layers of challenges that face somebody like that as compared to somebody else whose parents might have gone to university and had a middle-class job and who might have been black, but grew up in a neighborhood that was a bit better, and so on and so forth. And as compared to, you know, a young uh, white working class kid growing up in Newcastle, is going to have their own particular challenges that are different. And so when we are trying to genuinely understand how we improve people's circumstances, it's really, really critical that we don't just sort of lump them together in a way that seeks to just say, well, they must all be the same. And another critical uh, example of that is how you'll often hear politicians just say, middle class people here, and then you've got the white working class here, and then you've got the BAME here. And it's sort of like that kind of categorization as if the BAME people don't have working class within them, as if the, the white working class don't have more connection with the BME community, as if people don't necessarily sit down and think through, well, actually, Indians and Chinese are doing quite well. How do you lump them into the category of BAME? Sure, black boys are doing bad, but actually black African boys are doing disproportionately better than Afro-Caribbean boys. 
So how do we disaggregate these figures and these kind of cultural differences with a view to genuinely piercing where the commonalities lie and helping out more where the differences are stark? And that takes time and, it, and it's hard. And I'm not suggesting it's easy to do, but it's just lazy to just have simple categories because you won't really make that much progress. In, in writing the book, I, I wonder to what extent it felt cathartic to, to unpack what had happened to you and, and how, you, how you gave yourself agency. I mean, you were helped time and again, but... It, it, was, de- it was incredibly cathartic. And uh, I was talking to um, Grayson Perry, uh, if I may uh, name drop, about this, and 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 he was saying that actually, when he went through his own journey of work of growing up as a in 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 you know deprivation as a working class kid in Essex to have made it to the top of where he is, that writing and his story and reflecting on it was incredibly cathartic. And and I say in the book, this was a form of therapy. It really was a form of therapy for me. And the result of that really is, is on the one hand, you begin to reconcile so much of what you went through for what it was, rather than looking back in a way that might have been, you know, toxic. So in one sense, some things that I genuinely thought were fine, looking back, were actually quite shocking. And some things that I thought were really bad, in hindsight, weren't so bad. And so it was really good to have gone through that process and calculation and and then come out with the final figure of saying, I've made through all of that. Let's now move on to, to the next stage of your life and move on to doing something different without being a prisoner of, of, of your past. When, when you talk about um, the, the idea of buying an education and why parents will, will opt for sacrificing in many cases uh, for their children to go to private schools, one of the things that they're buying is confidence. And, and in the context of what you have just, what you've just outlined, did, did all of that recognising what was, what was tolerable to you, what was acceptable, laying it to rest, if you like, did it contribute to your own confidence? Definitely. You know, part of what confidence is really about is really about understanding the world around you for what it is. That's genuinely what the core of what confidence is about and not being afraid of what you don't know. And if you combine those two things, you're able to actually get to that stage in your life where nothing really in many ways challenges you in a way that you can't overcome. And so I definitely would say that writing this book, having gone through this process and having just genuinely tested myself in that way, I really do think that I've come to a point where my confidence is 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 definitely much stronger than what it was, but it wasn't a fragile, you know, shrinking violent either <laughs> to begin with. So so in that sense, you know, it's been reinforced, but but I think it helps because you understand your context better. And and in understanding your context better, have you also resolved the, the the tensions that exist between your original community and the community that you have acquired yeah I, I think I, I, I refer to it in the book as as, as, my, as the old world and the new world yeah I, I think there's that tension still remains I think that that tension is still there 
And I actually have come to terms with the idea that I will never reconcile those tensions. And that's okay. You know, my explaining to my grandmother that I attend black tie dinners where they drink port and sort of toast to the queen in Latin and wear gowns and wigs, whatever. I mean, you know, that world is so far removed that that there's no point in trying to get her to reconcile and understand what that means, just as much as the people I mix with will never fully appreciate the language in which I communicate with my mother in fully in Somali and the banter and the cultural references that might come with that. There's no point in trying to make them understand that world either. But they're all a part of me. They're all a part of who I am. And so it's really critical for anyone who's listening to this and who's trying to make their own journey on the social mobility sort of track and who are who's generally trying to figure out how to reconcile the old world and the new world, it's really, really important that you accept as early as possible that there is no end point to this, that you will never get to a point where your mum, who may not have formal education, will then come to fully understand what it means to be a professional auditor at Ernst & Young. And that's okay. But you just have to be comfortable in your own skin to be able to mix and mingle between these two worlds and not force the need to make them see eye to eye. Because if you do that, it will be the end of you. But but isn't there also a real tension, a continuing tension in that? Because it is about being understood. Each of us wants to be understood in the world. And and I wonder I wonder to what extent anyone you know you're right to say it can't be reconciled but this idea of of just accepting it then means that you are only partially seen by by both worlds yeah and i and i think and i think that's right i think that's right i mean it's hard for if you're if you are trying to bridge the the kind of gulf that i've bridged for example the kind of gulf that says 25 years ago, I did not speak a word of English. Today, I'm doing what I'm doing. It's really important that I then bring these two strings together so that they connect. It's impossible to do that. It's really impossible to do that in a way that genuinely and fully reconciles those two worlds. Now, does that mean that my old world in so many ways doesn't fully see and understand who I am today? Yeah, absolutely. And does that mean that the profession that I'm in and the people I mix and mingle with will never fully appreciate where I've come from? Absolutely. But that, to me anyway, doesn't mean that I am not seen. It just means that I am seen fully, but just from two different perspectives. That's the key. So you are now a, a barrister working for a very prestigious chambers. And, and I, I wonder, in writing this book, you know, you've had to research and, and think and consider and contemplate what's truly wrong with this society and what could be done to put it right. Did it occur to you that actually perhaps being a policy wonk or a politician would be something that you might want to engage in? 
I, I can't say it hasn't occurred to me, but th- th- I'd, I'd pose that question a different way. Where do I see myself making the most amount of difference at this point in my lifetime? Right now, I see myself making a difference where I am, spreading the message of what's in the book in this format, in this way. Do I think that I have the correct policies to make this society transform overnight? No, I don't. I have some ideas and I've shared those ideas in the book. I have some concept of what I think could change. I've again shared that in the book. But in terms of actually engaging with that day to day, and as for politics, I mean, look at the state of our politics today. Do I really (laughs) want to be in that fray and poison and toxic environment where people I've never met and will never meet are are sending me abuse online? I'm okay. Hashim Mohammed, thank you so much for speaking to us. Thank you. Thank you.